Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi there. I'm Seth Abramovich, senior writer at The Hollywood Reporter. I'm Chip Pope. I'm along for the wild ride. <laughs> and welcome back to another edition of It Happened in Hollywood. Now, Chip... Have you heard this expression that the kids are using? It's called problematic faves. Problematic faves? Problematic faves. Is that like a hashtag? What is that? I think it's a term that sort of started emerging from like Reddit message boards. And it refers to artists that you may love, Mm -hmm. but suddenly a cloud of doubt and maybe bad behavior and Me Too and, you know, artists like Louis C.K., R. Kelly, Chris Brown, uh, you know, there's a million. They're now being called problematic faves. Maybe those guys are no, no longer faves because so much bad press has come out about them. But this week we're going to do an episode and that's really going to be the central theme of it. We're dealing with a very problematic fave and that fave is the movie American Beauty, 1999 Best Picture winner. Best Director winner. Best Cinematographer winner. Best Script winner, but working up to the problematic fave, fave of some. Is the star. (gasps) Best Actor winner. Kevin Spacey. Boo. Boo now. 1999, yay! But boo. Right now. Well, our guest this week worked very closely with him. It's Thor Birch. She played his daughter in the film. And she has a lot of conflicted feelings about this movie, which she's still very proud of. And we talked to her about that and a lot of other interesting stuff about the making of American Beauty. And that's what's on this week of It Happened in Hollywood. How was your your Christmas break? This is our first time recording an episode since the break. Happy New Year. I did have a great holiday. I found out that my niece can bounce on her butt and jump up back on her feet on a trampoline 107 times in a row without getting tired or breaking a sweat. We'll have to have her on the show. We we should. (laughs) Well, if you could only see her bouncing on this trampoline. It's like the sun rose and set behind her while she was doing it. It was I couldn't believe it. How was your holiday? <laughs> oh, it was fine. Whatever. But 
Uh, no, it was it was nice. It was quiet, and I had a nice trip to New York, and I uh, interviewed Samuel L. Jackson for Hollywood Reporter magazine, and he was a little scary at first, to be honest, but then he warmed up, and we had a great lunch together. And, I'm jealous. Um, I love him. Yeah, great guy. Now you live with him and his wife, right? Yep, I've moved in, and I'm um, taking care of their dogs. No, That's, I'm not. You're chained to his radiator. Like in Black Snake Moan. I got it. <laughs> I, had to, I didn't have to explain further. No. Okay. But the one weird thing was a kind of collective weirdness that happened, which was on Christmas Eve when everyone should be hopefully with their family or people they love and, you know, around wrapped gifts and whatnot. Suddenly, Twitter exploded with this video that Kevin Spacey put out. He hadn't said anything since all these allegations of sexual improprieties against underage young men, and some of them were of age. And then he comes out in character as his character from House of Cards and speaks in this drawl directly at the the camera. And I don't know what he was saying. Do you? It was just bizarre because he goes like, then he say like, face it, you missed me. And it's kind of like, he means Frank Underwood, right? He doesn't mean... Kevin Spacey, I hope, because no one's missing Kevin Spacey. You might miss the character of Frank Underwood because House of Cards isn't as good anymore, but oh boy, it's yeah. a problem. I, I didn't understand it. Problematic I, fave. A problematic fave, yeah, exactly. Anyway, it was sort of uh, fortuitous that our last guest that we recorded our interview before we took our holiday break was Thora Birch, and the topic we wanted to talk about was American Beauty, a, a movie that I think... Both of us had a lot of conflicted feelings, but something about that movie really sticks in your mind. Entire sequences like were exactly as I had remembered them. Yes, it's not my favorite movie of all time, but it is a movie that you can't deny has a, a certain draw. And you, you can't deny that it's well written and well acted and well put together. So there's a script floating around Hollywood and people are into it. And there's this young actress. She's very young. She's 16. And uh, her name is Thora Birch, a child star. And she had been, you know, acting since the 80s. She was born in Los Angeles. Her parents were uh, actually from the 70s, former porn stars. Her mother was actually in Deep Throat, not the main actress from Deep Throat, but a supporting one. And they both left that world behind and became more artsy showbiz folk, I guess, based here in L.A. And she was chugging along uh, with some great parts in... Uh, you know, films like Hocus Pocus and Monkey Trouble, that classic. And, you know, she was sort of had a reputation of being a very sort of chipper, eager Disney kind of girl. You know, and then she had turned 16 and she was ready for, for something a little different. And this hot script was circulating around town and it definitely sparked her interest. I read it. And for me at that age, I didn't have a lot of in-depth knowledge of, let, let's say, independent cinema from the mid to late 70s. So I, for me, I hadn't seen anything like it. I hadn't seen anything like it. I certainly hadn't read any scripts like it. And it just seemed so fresh, but also so poignant and so layered. And I felt like every character was well-drawn and communicated a great wealth of emotion with very few lines and the way exposition was laid out was so subtle and hidden. And I just, I don't know, I completely latched onto it immediately. Loved the story and also just fell in love with Jane. And I remember telling, you know, my people and my family and everything like, oh, you know, I, I really respond to Jane. Like, I think, I feel like this is, you know, this is 
my part. And some people were like, oh, no, but Angela is the much more flashy one and a much more of a fun role and kind of like in line with things that you've done before. And I kind of railed against that. I was pretty, yeah, I was like, yeah, that's maybe true, but also I can't stand Angela. So, <laughs> <laughs> and there were a lot of parallels in odd ways of just like her moroseness and her, the fact that she was just so introverted and, and, and closed off, like was a part of my personality that was true at the time. Mm -hmm. But it was also the same part of the personality that I was always fighting against being a child actor and a performer and somebody who has to go into a room and, you know, shake hands and make jokes and all that. that like that was the persona of me, but I felt like Jane really spoke to like the inner me. So I think that that's one reason why I really responded to her. So she has a couple meetings with Sam Mendes, who's this British theater director who's gonna be directing the movie. And they hadn't cast yet the part of Lester that was her father. I think there was some talk about William H. Macy at some point, and I thought that that was a great, you know, thing, but then just, the audition process just kept getting elongated. Like it kept lasting longer and longer and longer. And I, I got confused as to like, well, yeah, but I met it on this like months ago and I heard great feedback. So what's going on? And then I was shooting a film, a TV movie in Oregon or outside Portland in Oregon. And I got called away from that to do a final screen test. The second time auditioning with with Wes and maybe the first time auditioning with Mina and it kind of all came together. Like you could just see like our relationship and the dynamics and even how we reacted to each other individually was just kind of fit with Ricky, Jane and Angela. So it's, it's interesting to see how a, a cast like this comes together. And it seems like they were probably testing for chemistry and stuff. And mm -hmm. even Kevin Spacey wasn't a shoe in they were sort of, you know, it's always like a dance, right? So it sounds like, you know, they landed on their perfect cast, and it really was a perfect cast. So you have Thora playing this sort of sullen girl who's just dis discovering her sexuality, who does not like her parents. Jane. Living in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. And then you have Kevin Spacey and Annette Benning playing her parents, who've stopped having sex a long time ago and really don't remember why they love each other. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, they're staying together. The story of everyone's parents. And then you have her best friend, Angela, played by Mina Suvari. She is kind of, I guess, a prototype of the self-obsessed teen that we see so often in today's life. The uh, selfie-type person. I think we'd call her an influencer. Yeah, I was going to say, she might be an influencer. And then Ricky, the sullen kid who just moves in next door with the repressed military father. Right, well, that's Wes Bentley in a breakout role for him and he sort of peers through a video camera for a lot of the movie and he's just very dark and brooding and sexy and disturbed and deals weed and all the like things. Sounds like you love him. Well, Sounds you like know. like the bad boy. You total slut. You've got a crush on him. What? Please. You are defending him. You love him. You want to have like 10,000 of his babies. Shut up. So Sam Mendes... I believe he did theater at some place called the Donmar Warehouse in London, and he had rebooted Cabaret to much acclaim. And, you know, he, he was a sort of creative mind, but he came out of theater. And so he made sure in their shooting time that they had a good chunk of time to actually sit down and rehearse. It was pretty fascinating to hear how that actually played out. 
these rehearsals is it he comes out of theater so does it feel like you're putting on a play were you doing it start to finish the script I believe the first week was a lot of that just read through read through read through collectively as a cast and then the second week was more like sectioned off where everyone would get together and we'll be like oh okay well we're gonna do this bulk of scenes and just like there was also a lot of (laughs) therapy involved in the rehearsal it was a lot of uh opening up and trying to share things from our own lives about why we related to these characters and and you know how they paralleled and also differentiated from from things that we were feeling and thinking and like everybody brought a lot of themselves to it i know annette did a lot of like research about women that were kind of becoming obsessed with the the self-help realm and everything and and uh and she brought a lot of that into it. Kevin was like working out obsessively and kind of already ready in in the headspace of Lester, even in rehearsals. So it was it was just kind of fun to see everybody doing their own thing. And then there was like Wes, Mina, and I, who are just like these kids who are basically just incredibly excited to be there and watching these already masters at their craft perform and trying to absorb as much as we could from them and also put on a, a good game face like yeah no we definitely should totally be here too like you know we're completely entitled because <laughs> we got cast right. <laughs> what were you surprised to learn about some of these you know more established actors that you were working with or i mean i was surprised to see them open up in that space and i think that that was kind of freeing for me and it helped me to do that as well i kind of took my lead from that i'm like well if Kevin Spacey, who's Kaiser Soze, can, you know, talk about certain things. I guess I can open up, too. But then also it was interesting to see where, like, there was always a limit. Like, they would go so far, and then there would be a wall that would go up and then be like, oh, now I need to speak in third person or something. And okay. and it's just funny to watch actors, like, slip in and out of their natural state versus a more image-concerned kind of persona that people can slip on, you know, when they feel like that that they have a lot to protect. Now, I wanted to know what Kevin Spacey was talking about in the therapy sessions, but also didn't want to pry too much. Yeah, I mean, these are, you know, highly personal things where you're exposing things as an actor. It, it That's why it's, it's not like a regular workplace. That's what I, I don't think people understand that for actors, you're sharing crazy personal things. You're going to dark places in your head. And it's places you would not go to in life if you're just having a casual conversation with someone or just that. Or in a nine to five office. Yeah. Yeah. Because people would just think you're the office weirdo if you go into those things. It's a different work environment completely. And I think Hollywood is having hard adjustment right now, realizing well, no, it's a workplace and we need HR and everyone needs to behave themselves. But it might end up, you know, having a bad effect on the final product. I don't want to say for sure, but, you know, I think you do have to kind of go to crazy places and do crazy things to elicit great performances sometimes. Yes. So all the uh, actors are bonding in their therapy sessions and the teenagers kind of bonding and they're creating these intimate performances that Mendez would get out of them. But keep in mind, these are flesh and blood teenagers with hormonal teenage needs. Would you have been attracted to a guy like Ricky or would you have thought, well, this is kind of pretentious? Visually, yes. Uh, <laughs> you thought he was cute. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. I, I still think he was really cute. But yeah, no, I think maybe 
I would have probably responded to a little bit more of a class clown. But just for the purposes of the film and everything, I loved Ricky Fitz just as much as the next girl kind of would. And, you know, thought he was super cool and just like this close from being a bad boy, like not really a bad boy because he's got a good heart and all that stuff. But still kind of like walking the line of danger and everything that's exciting when you're that age. So this gets to what you were saying about problematic faves. okay? because uh, bad boys in general. A big part of that is how they treat women is is what you are implying by when you say someone's a bad boy. Right. But not Ricky. Ricky was sort of a good boy as far as how he treated women. Well, yes, like you said, he had a, he had a heart. Except for the fact that he videotaped them through the window changing. Right. Oh, Ricky. Are you going to put out a Christmas Eve video? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Ricky. <laughs> I have to say, the student has become the teacher. In what way? Well, because... On the episode with Joe Esterhaz, you couldn't believe I was asking all these personal questions about him and Sharon Stone's affair. Right. And meanwhile, you just trudge ahead and ask questions about Kevin Spacey's sexuality that I didn't have the nerve to bring up. But I was kind of glad that you did. I didn't buy Kevin Spacey as the early 40s family man in this movie from the get go. Really? Even when you first saw it? Gay to me. Yes. You knew he was gay? Exactly. Because it, it's just something about his, the way he is. You know, call it gaydar or whatever. But when the movie opens, just like, hi, my name is Lester <laughs> Burnham. I'm just a regular straight man. There I am jacking off in the shower. It's the highlight of my day. Look at me. Jerking off in the shower. This will be the high point of my day. It's all downhill from here. Kevin Spacey is a gay man playing this straight character, but he's also at the same time trapped in the Hollywood closet because in 1999, and even now, really, I mean, how many, what what are there, a bunch of gay leading men? I mean, it just doesn't happen. You have Rupert Everett and his career went right into the toilet. It's like the only out gay lead, basically. It's a real gay house of mirrors, this movie. Now, while I field some complaints from Glad over your imitation of Kevin Spacey, <laughs> why don't we go back to the interview? I think it's very accurate. You watch the movie. It's just, Hi, I'm Lester Byrne. All right, cut to That's the interview. When you meet Kevin Spacey when you're 16 or something, is like the gaydar going off, or or how does that? What? Chip, what? Are, why don't you what? Just cut right to the chase. Well, I don't know. I'm just wondering. I mean, here's here's what I can say about that. It's not like we were hanging out off camera and just like chilling and bonding when we weren't working together. You know, I mean, he went off and did his thing. And like, all I know of Kevin is that when we were on set together and doing a scene together, he was the most, one of the most generous actors I've ever worked with in the sense that there was no warfare going on with him at all. Like he was the most giving. Sometimes I, I think I might've thought that he was acting even better when it was my close up or like, it was just, He's just that great to work with. But apart from that, he was kind of an enigma. Like, I didn't really get to know him personally. Like, I never really saw him around. Other than the most I got to know him was during the rehearsal period. And even that, like I said, was kind of limited because, like, he would be open and then, like, wall. It got too personal? Maybe, but it was hard to tell because he would often share personal anecdotes about his childhood or certain things like that or things that he thought would inform Lester. 
And so I, at the time, was like, wow, you said that to a room full of coworkers. That's pretty ballsy. Like, I don't know that I would feel that comfortable doing that. But because he did, I was like, oh, okay, well, maybe I can, you know, chip in here with an anecdote or whatever. But other than that, I just, I, I don't know. Like I said, he was one of the best actors to work with. And apart from that, I don't really know too much about him. The chemistry between Kevin Spacey and Annette Bening is amazing in this film. Yes. And I'm thinking of a few scenes, one where they kind of reconcile for a bit and they almost remember what they used to like about each other. This yeah. amazingly it's poignant great. moment where everyone lets their guards down for a second and you can breathe and it has an amazing resonance on the audience. When, and, when she gets upset about he's almost spilling the uh, drink on the couch. Yes. That, yeah. yeah, that scene. But then, of course, the polar opposite of that scene is all the fireworks and fights that they have, which are really fun to watch. Yeah. They're both firing on all cylinders. And Thor as well, who had to sit between them for a lot of them. I think my favorite are the dinner scenes just because, for me, like, shooting them was such a memorable moment. And it's still some of the most powerful memories that I have of the experience of shooting American Beauty. It was, like, definitely from just watching Kevin and Annette engage in, in full-on combat warfare, like just just laying it all out on a, on a talent level, on an energy level. just And it took so long because we shot it from different angles, and Connie was, like, doing his thing with the lights. And it just was so intense, and trying to absorb their ability to handle that and also recognize that they also were dealing with their own stress levels in and concern for their own characters and their performances and everything and and watch them work together in tandem but also with a little bit of combat mixed in is fascinating and i was terrified that i'm just like well i guess i could just sit here behind the roses and like hope that maybe i have something to react to that someone will pay attention to but also just completely absorb i was just trying to be as sponge-like as Jane was at that point, and just, like, learned from the masters. You two do whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it, and I don't complain. All I want... Oh, you don't same... complain? Oh, please, excuse me. Excuse me. I must be psychotic then. If you don't complain, what is this? Yeah, let's, let's, let's bring in the laugh mater and see how loud it gets on that one. You don't complain. Don't interrupt me, honey. How many times did he throw that plate of food at the wall mm. in that scene? I think in total, probably about in between 7 to 12 or something. Wow. That was an art department day for sure. That was a busy, busy art department props day. Because right. they had to like, cleaning the wall. Yeah, well, it wasn't always the wall. Like for the one shot, you can see it land on the wall. And then the rest of the time, they I think if I remember correctly, they put up this huge blanket thing. And you know, he was just throwing it against the blanket <laughs> so it wouldn't break. Right, right. Yeah. You know, I don't think there's been a lot of teenage nude scenes in Oscar winning best pictures. And this movie has two. So... This is the kind of thing I don't think you'd see anymore in movies. Just nude scenes with two teenage actors, including one 16-year-old. It's pretty edgy. And once again, Scoops Pope confronts our subject. Hey, with... look, the people want to know. People want to know about this. <laughs> it's just basic BuzzFeed journalism, Seth. <laughs> Great. You need to get on board. What's going through your mind like the morning you got to shoot a nude scene? Uh, just probably ab abject terror. But also I kind of... I embrace even my uncomfortableness with it because 
I felt it was the same level of uncomfortableness that Jane was feeling. She didn't see, she wasn't like Angela, like, oh, are you filming me? Let me take off my top. It wasn't right. a girl's gone wild moment. You know, it was a way for her to communicate with him when she felt like she couldn't vocalize certain things. And I thought it was a very natural moment and a very vulnerable moment for Jane. And I always felt that it's not like I they sprung it on me and I didn't know that the scene was coming up. I had read the script like a year ago. So I knew and, and, and had, you know, talked about it with Sam to a certain extent. And it was it was very clear that it wasn't a sexual moment. It was something else. It was the display of innocence. I don't know. It sounds so lame, but <laughs> it does. It sounds lame, but it's also what was going on at the time. And so I just complete for that moment, like in the morning, maybe I had some vanity attached to it. We're like, oh, I didn't lose all the weight I wanted to lose or whatever. But after that, you know, you just forget about it. And the environment on this set was completely, it was so closed off. I was like, can't we just let a few more people in, please? I mean, this is just all this special treatment. Yeah, all this special treatment is not exactly helping. Like, just act like it's another day. So the film wraps and, you know, everyone has a good feeling about this movie and, you know, everyone wants to see it. But suddenly weeks turn into months and there ends up being a delay. Then they call everyone back in for reshoots. Which never means something good. That's yeah, that's not a good sign. And and Thor started to get a little bit worried about maybe this isn't everything she dreamed it might be for her career and and for movies in general. And then she get a call, she gets a call from Sam Mendes and he says, I have something to show you when you come in. And he had the whole cast come in and he screamed the movie. So she saw it, but it wasn't just that the movie was great. It was that the way they were selling it was great. I think when we started seeing the ad campaign that Terry Press was putting together and the trailer. I had already seen the film, but the first time I saw the trailer that they were going to release and the way that they orchestrated all of that, then it started to get very exciting. And then they started screening it to critics and to colleges and certain film festivals. And we went on a little bit of a mini tour with it, just taking it around the country and talking to people who were seeing it and watching the reviews trickle in. And it reached kind of a fever pitch and it was incredibly exciting. But also that was a great year. Like there's a lot of a lot of great movies that, that came out that year yeah. and it was a stiff competition. But I remember DreamWorks sent over like they would send over booklets and and we still had cassettes back then. So like VHS cassettes full of news clippings from like, you know, Minnesota and Kansas and stuff like that, where even the TV news stations there were like talking about American Beauty and giving it good reviews and everything. And, and so they would compile compile a media. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, like uh, real data collection stuff. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but you, just to give you a sense of, of how much this is. Well, honestly, even looking back, I kind of wonder, like, maybe they shouldn't have sent all that to me. You know, like, right. you know but, but it's I was like so the happy original that they Internet did. comments. Did you ever read reviews about yourself when you I guess? Or I mean, I read, now, the, I read or, the reviews. I read maybe too many more than I should have, but they were also good. Like it. I was kind of scouring to see, like, somebody say something bad about it, you know. I wasn't interested from the point of view, like, oh, this is going to be great for my career. Like, are they going to say anything about me? How is this going to impact me? It was more like, look at what we did. Look at what we were a part of and look at how people are responding to it. And it was incredibly fulfilling. And I think partially even the reason it was more so for me because I had a scar tissue from Hocus Pocus 
because when Hocus Pocus came out, nobody really liked it and nobody went to go see it. And, you know, but and now it's the making, the, but the making of that film was the only other time where I was so excited and felt like so jazzed to have been a part of it and just had so much fun. The experience was so great. And I loved the material and loved my character and loved everything about it. It comes out and nobody gives a shit. And that was like, it lasted with me for a long time. So I, I think the part of the reason where I was like happy to pour over all of the stuff from American Beauty because it was finally going the other way. Right. Like something that I loved that much and cared about that much was being received initially in the way that I felt about it. So it was an ego booster. It was also a little disconcerting, but it was definitely an ego booster. So of course, you know, with all this buzz building, it, it fulfills all of its promise and wins an astonishing number of Oscars and becomes, you know, the most talked about, imitated, parodied, you know, in a year filled with big movies, this was the biggest of that year. Right. The marimbas were a ringtone, right? Like a ringtone on iTunes <laughs> You're talking or about Apple? The, the xylophone. Yeah, the xylophone. Yeah, but I think that's actually coincidental. I don't think, oh, I think they sound not... alike. I don't think they actually took the theme I, song. I have a droid. I don't know. <laughs> Seems like when people's phone rings and it's like, ding, 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 ding. That's the uh, Well, through the magic of podcasting, thing. why don't we compare the two right now? Okay, that was the theme song from American Beauty. Now here's iPhone's xylophone ringtone. Pretty They're similar. so close. Pretty similar, pretty similar. They're so close. But, you know, it's 2019, so it is the 20th anniversary of this movie. That's insane. So, yeah, first of all, 20 years. Oh, my God. Where have 20 years gone? But also, typically, you know, a movie like this had won so many Oscars, a nice round number like 20 You'd have a lot of celebratory screenings, Q&As, reunions. Victory laps. Victory laps. But it doesn't seem like it's going to be the case for, for American Beauty, which is kind of a shame. Have there been talks for with the 20th coming up of doing any of these kind of reunions? I mean, there might have been, but I, I, don't, I don't see that. Before Kevin, you mean? Yeah. There might have been, but I, I don't know. I didn't hear anything. I don't hear anything. And so how do you process that? Because this is, I'm sure, one of the proudest moments of your career. And, and how do you react to this kind of news breaking, kind of trickling out? It's not even one day. It like went over. Well, it kind of was one day. I mean, I kind of like remember, like it was not that long after the Harvey thing. And then I get a notification on my phone like we all did, you know. Oh, Kevin. And I'm like, oh, okay, wow, great. That's good. And then it kept coming and coming and coming. And like, yeah, it's traumatic. You know, it hurts like hell. But... It is what it is, and I have to separate that because at the end of the day, that doesn't really have anything to do with the movie or the script or the characters that we were playing or the experience that we had. It's just a personal matter that's incredibly unfortunate and was handled incredibly poorly. So it sounds like you, you were upset for the victims, but also upset that this was sort of ruining something that was really close to you, meaning the movie. I mean, mainly... I was shocked to find out the age of certain individuals. That was, um, that's the most judgmental one can become about any of this, where you just like really, you're like, dude, fucking kids, man, what the fuck? But again, it's like, you can't help but feel like, oh, great, now we have this stain on the film. But at the end of the day, it's like a constant reminder. No, it shouldn't be on the film. Like, what? Is Conrad Hall to blame? Like, uh, who's to blame? It's Kevin's. 
for whatever. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have anything to do with American beauty at the end of the day. And I think, or I hope at least overall, like some of that will dissipate from how people regard the film itself. I think it it is at least someone like me who was a part of American Beauty to at least try to remind everyone that like, look, it was an entire community that made this film and we all did it because we loved the film and it doesn't really have anything to do with Kevin at the end of the day. I'm not an apologist for the film, but I, I see it from a very, I think mainly because so much time has passed. I, I think I finally have objectivity with the film. Uh, I no longer feel personally tied to it in any way. And yet I don't feel detached on a personal level, but I just, I can kind of look at it from other people's point of view. And also just as someone who was connected to just to remind them just to watch the movie. Like that's all it is. It's a movie people, you know, just like the great Joe Esterhaus used to say, just a movie. It's just a movie. (laughs) Remember kids. It's just a movie. (laughs) I don't know who that impression is. It's not Joe Esterhaus though. Um, well, I mean, what can we say? Thora, you were amazing. Yes, she was so honest and open with us, and she endured my dumb questions. And we also asked her quite a bit about Ghost World, because Ghost World is one of my favorite movies, but uh, it's just not its not making it into the podcast. But God, Subscribe love, to Chip's Ghost Patreon, World. and you can have yes. the Ghost World material. Yes. I mean, it's really up to you, but I would recommend giving American Beauty uh, another look. It definitely is something that, it still causes a lot of controversy independent of, you know, anything that Kevin Spacey's done. Anyway, a lot to think about this week. Some of it was fun and some of it was a little bit tough to think about, but an that interesting... That seems like life right now, you know? That's that seems definitely like the world seems like life. That we're in, the entertainment world that we're in. Interesting issues raised by this, by this episode. There's something I wanted to say, and that's that I've been getting a lot of emails complimenting our theme song... And that people really look forward to it every episode. And so I just want to give a shout out to the two people responsible for it, Paul Masvidal and Sean Malone, who happen to be two members of the prog metal supergroup Cynic. Wow. So we have some musical heavy hitters behind our theme song. So shout out to Paul and Sean. And as always, review us on iTunes. Separate the art from the artists. Yeah, try to try to remember that we are not this podcast. We are simply the conduit through which it flows. Yes. Remember, at the end of the day, it's just a podcast. <laughs> Until next time, we'll see you in, in Hollywood. Hollywood.